Good morning. Welcome, church. We're glad you're here. I'm going to read, I uh, have a prayer here from Henry Nowen that I want to read to you. Sorry, I'm going to hold this because my eyes are not that great. Um, if you would stand, uh, we're going to worship the Lord if you're able. Um, just take a posture of worship, whatever is comfortable for you. It says, give me the courage to live and work for a new heaven and a new earth as Jesus did. Give me the freedom to be critical where I see evil and to offer praises where I see goodness. Most of all, make me faithful to the vision you have given me so that wherever I go and whomever I meet, I can be a sign of your all-renewing love. Amen. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Before we start. Um, sorry about that. Didn't mean to get out the flow, but we've had a couple of big days this week. Um, many of you might know that in addition to Pastor Appreciation Month and in addition to um, them buying a house, Friday was also our Pastor Nicole's birthday. Um, it was a bit divided by five, right? Isn't this, isn't, wasn't this one of the ones that's divisible by five or four or three or two or sure okay and um i know of all of her birthdays this one is probably one of her favorite because she got to spend it with so many of us at the fall festival friday night and that magical hayride that we went on so at, on behalf of the church and the board here is a gift card and a birthday card to pastor nicole i cannot sing but if we could sing happy birthday Happy birthday. We love you. Okay, now we're going to sing. <laughs>
I'm going to read the call to worship. Do we have a call to worship? Revelation 19, verse 6 through 7. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty thunder peals, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Amen. our worship this morning.
as we transition into a time of prayer. And let's make that our prayer along with the other prayers that we have this morning is for the Holy Spirit to come and fill us again. Amen. Would you pray that with me, that he would come? I mean, we know he's here, but we pray that the Holy Spirit would come and fill us. And so let's be intentional about opening our hearts up to him this morning. Let's pray. God, I thank you 
for your faithfulness, which we are declaring and remembering this morning. God, it is a good and beautiful thing when the people of God can gather together and we can declare with our mouths, with our words in song that you have been and you will continue to be faithful to your people. That when we call upon you, when we cry out to you with the needs that we have, that God, you care, you lean in and you listen. And God, we know that you are diligent, that you are faithful, that you provide for us. And so God, we take this moment to lift up to you whatever it is, whatever the needs are that we carry into this place this morning. God, for those who are not here, we remember them and we lift them up. God, this morning we are remembering and we're lifting up Marcella and we're lifting up Karen and Mike and their family. And God, we are calling out to you as we were singing that you were a healer then, and you are a healer now, God. I was praying that for Marcella. God, we just pray that you would draw near, that you would touch her body. God, that you would give her strength, redeem her strength, God, renew her strength. We pray, God, that you would give wisdom where it's needed to know what is going on. God, we pray for her her physicians, that they would be able to, to see and to know what's causing all of this sickness. And God, we pray for a renewing of strength in her spirit and her soul this morning. God, I pray that she would know that you are near, that you care about her, that you love her, you care about the physical needs of her body. And I pray, God, that she would remember that this morning and that she would somehow know that she is being lifted up and remembered by her church family. And God, we just pray for, for Mike and for Karen that you would renew their strength through this tiring and overwhelming time. God, would you draw near, help them to know that you are right there with them. God, that you are, are journeying with them, that you are dwelling among them, God, that you care about these needs and that you are helping them. You're giving them strength. God, we thank you that as we bring our needs before you, we thank you that you care. God, thank you for caring about the needs that, that weigh us down and that burden us. And I pray, God, that we would rest this morning in your faithfulness, trusting in you and your perfect provision Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come. I pray that you would come, continue to fill this place. I pray that in this moment that we would open up our hearts. I pray that as we open up your word, that you would give us ears to hear. As Paul is doing, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us an imagination. 
Help us to see what it looks like to live as your creation, as your redeemed people. Help us not to be critical of, of your word, but help us to receive it this morning with fresh ears, with an open heart. God, I thank you that you carry this moment. And we are relying on you, God, to guide us, to ignite our imaginations, to speak to our hearts this morning, and to give us the strength and the willingness to live as you've called us to live, to walk as you've called us to walk. God, we know that you will help us and that you walk with us as we seek to follow you. So God, we thank you. Thank you, God, for hearing us, for drawing near. And we end this time of prayer with a word of praise because you are a holy, mighty God. You are worthy of of all of our praise, of all that we have to give and bring this morning. You are so worthy. And God, we thank you that even in all of your majesty and all of your holiness and all of your righteousness, that you intimately draw near to us. So we thank you and we praise you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, before we jump in this morning, um, just want to take a few moments to share just a few things with you. Um, thank you for all of the love over the past few weeks. Um, and like Kathy mentioned last week, uh, we do feel fortunate enough to, to know uh, that you all appreciate us all throughout the year. There are many of you who are very uh, faithful in letting us know that. And so just please know that it doesn't take all of these uh, generous acts, that, that that is so appreciated, but we also truly do know and we feel that love and that appreciation. And, and so thank you for all of that. It's overwhelming in the month of October because it's, you know, birthday and, and the pastor appreciation. And yeah, on top of it, it's just been, it's overwhelming, but in the best way. Uh, and we were so pleased, uh, I was so pleased to spend my birthday and a few others, Kathy, we, Kathy uh, Wooden, we spent our birthdays together at the Hands House. We just had a marvelous time. I know I speak for everyone who was there, that it was just wonderful. Uh, would you all just join me in thanking Burl and Judy for opening up their homes this Friday? Um, man, I just... I left just feeling and thinking about it over the weekend and saw a few people post about it, and I just thought, that was just so wonderful. And, and we went on the, the hayride of a lifetime, and only those who were there will know. And so that's just the way it is. You had to be there, uh, and you just carry that memory with you as Burl drove us around the countryside <laughs> on this hayride. It was such a great time. We, we truly had a wonderful time, and I just felt so grateful uh, for community, and there really is no other place I would have liked to have been on Friday night. It was so wonderful. 
and so it just reminds me that community matters. It's important. And, and this matters. This is significant for sure. But it's, it's those times of fellowship together, um, just spending that time together, that, that really does make a significant difference as we journey together. And so I was grateful for that. Uh, I want to let you know of another opportunity that you can gather in fellowship, not just with church family, but uh, with the district family too. Uh, today is the last day to sign up for the district, the Illinois district primetime retreat, primetimers retreat, and that's going to be next weekend. We've had the information in the foyer for you. Uh, so if you're interested in signing up for that, today's the last day to do that. And um, if you have any questions, you can let us know, but it sounds like that's going to be a great time of fellowship and that community again with other believers that's so important, that's so helpful on this journey. Uh, and finally, this morning, I want to just let you know a little promo for next Sunday. Uh, next Sunday is a fifth Sunday, and uh, while we haven't always had uh, something strike us to, to do something special on the fifth Sunday. Um, I'm getting some ideas and insights of things that I would like to do on those special fifth Sundays. And so we're going to kind of start that next Sunday as we have a different, a different kind of service, a different structure. Um, this slide tells you a little bit about what you can expect. Um, but it's going to be a time where, where Nikki and I are going to kind of sit up here in the chairs like we had with the life group uh, discussion a few weeks ago. And it's just going to be a time of sharing our hearts. Uh, we're going to hear from Nikki as she shares her heart as uh, the worship leader here. And it's just a time for us to hear from other BFCNers too, who are going to be interviewed when it comes to their thoughts and and things on worship. And I think you'll find it really uh, insightful. And so I hope that you'll plan to be here. It's going to be a special time together. So I just wanted to kind of give you a heads up. So we'll pause from our series next week. Uh, and then we're actually going to end the series the following week. So we're coming to the home stretch. So last Sunday, we left off, if you recall, at Ephesians 5 verse 20. Last week, we looked at the passage that, that well-known passage where Paul instructs us to take off or put off the old self, right? He talks about being renewed, made new by the Spirit, and he talks about taking on and putting on that which leads to holiness and righteousness. Uh, as God is holy and righteous, we are to put on those things that help us to reflect that holiness, that righteousness, that it is possible. It is possible that people who are following so closely behind Jesus that we might reflect him and look like him. Paul gives us that imagination. Uh, we certainly emphasize that this is only possible through the work of the Holy Spirit, right? That there's nothing that we can do to just magically change, that it's, it's simply us surrendering daily moment by moment, if you will, to the way that the Holy Spirit wants to move uh, and, 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 and speak through us in, in, as we follow Jesus closely. And so what's tricky about that is the passage that we're going to pick up at today uh, follows right along with that. These are not two separate passages where Paul is kind of starting a new, brand new thought and so I want you to really think about that as we begin reading, that Paul is carrying this thought through, and, and he has been focusing largely on the life of the church, on the community and fellowship of believers, 
We've talked a lot about what it looks like to be a unified body of Christ. And so we've spent a lot of time talking about that. But today we're going to go into the households. And Paul is going to talk about the importance of of this same kind of, of submission in households, but this all flows together. It's not separate thoughts. And so that's really important that we uh, consider that and remember that as we read this morning. My only disclaimer for you, yeah, uh, is that today's passage is a long one. And so I'm just going to say, this can't count for my time, okay? I didn't count the passage when I go over my time to just make sure I'm not going like for an hour. And so this passage can't count. Please don't hold it against me. It's so long, but um, it's full of some really good stuff. And and it's going to be a lot today. I, I, I admit that when I say it's going to be a lot, it's going to be a lot to take in, um, but I trust that the Lord is going to help us as we are, are open to receiving this morning, okay? So I'm going to invite you to stand, if you're able, uh, if you're willing and able, stand this morning as we pick up Ephesians verse, uh, chapter 5, starting with verse 21. Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is the very heavy word of God for the people of God. Can we say thanks be to God? Thanks be to God. You may be seated. 
All right. You guys, this is heavy. I have carried that all week. There is so much. Here's why it's so heavy. Like, I'm very confident in, in the word that I'm going to share with you today. I do not doubt uh, that, that this word is inspired by the Holy Spirit and affirmed by so many scholars that I heavily leaned on this week. But the reason that it feels so heavy is because I had such a time knowing, uh, such a difficult time knowing where to stop with the information that I could share with you because there is so much that could be said. I promise I, I did a decent job condensing it for you, but just know that once again, uh, the sermon portion, if you will, fails to go to all the depths of this word, okay? And so it's wonderful when we can take this and, and continue to study ourselves, to talk about it with others. It's so helpful uh, because it's just impossible for that to all be done in this space. So I just want to acknowledge that so much that we could and, and will not say about all of this today. Uh, there's so much that could be said about household relationships in Paul's day, which is what Paul is focusing on. He has uh, shifted gears a bit, but I also want you to keep in mind, like I said, that, that he's not separating these thoughts out. Uh, one of the things that we could say about uh, relationships in Paul's day that I want you to keep in mind this morning is that these household relationships were really significant, particularly because churches met in homes during this time, right? Churches didn't gather in other buildings in separate places. At this time, churches took place in homes. People opened up their homes for the church, for their for, the, for fellow followers of Jesus to come in and to share and to live and to fellowship together. They, they sat in homes under the, the teaching of, of apostles and teachers, right? And they talked about these things together. They broke bread together. They shared in fellowship together. And so you can understand then right, off, right out of the gate why this was so significant for Paul. Because Paul is certainly having in mind, like, your relationships are significant, especially as they, your, your household relationships, as they mesh with the life of the church, right? If your household relationships weren't in order in Paul's day, it's going to significantly affect the culture of the church, which is meeting in your home. There was no separation, if you will. And that's where it gets a little tricky today, because we can come here and we can put on whatever facade we'd like, and we can really live totally separate lives here than what we live at home. And of course, none of us know uh, if the other person is doing that. Maybe if you've had the opportunity to get to know them, you could see like, well, this is different. But really, none of us knows because we could easily come here and, and put on a totally different face. And, and I would say that that's unfortunate and that really our household relationships should still affect and probably does still affect the culture and nature of our church. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's significant because it's really tricky to be one way in one space and one way in another space. And more than likely, if you're, if you're nasty in one space, then you're probably going to be nasty in another space. And, and remember, this is all in the, the flow of the thought that Paul has said multiple times already that we are to submit to one another right? Like we are to serve one another. We are to consider one another. We are to love and, and live faithfully with one another. And how can we do that if we're not even exercising that in our own households, 
right? If somebody, for instance, wants all of the authority in their household and all authority in one sense, then they're probably going to not stop until they have all the authority in another sense. And so you can see how, especially in Paul's day, this all meshed, right? There was this overflow. And I would say that even though it's a little different today, kind of, you know, it's, it's the fault of our own that we live kind of separate lives. Uh, but I still think we can see how living faithfully and submitting faithfully to each other in our homes helps to, to create and cultivate a healthier culture in our worship spaces. Does that make sense? So keep that in mind, that that's, that's kind of something that, that Paul would have definitely had as he's sharing all of this. Um, another thing we need to keep in mind this is going to really be the backbone of everything else I say. So this is really important that you understand or, or try to understand this, is that all of what Paul is saying is viewed through the lens of ancient household codes. Okay, this is not to be viewed through the lens of a 21st century Western American. Right, this is all said, the backdrop here is, is, an, is a, a way of living that was ruled by ancient household codes. And, and as you're going to see in just a moment, or as you can really see in the passage even, ancient household codes are all about hierarchy, right? You can see that, that this was all about and supporting the idea that there's always one that rules over another. In the ancient world, especially in a world that was, uh, that was emphasized by Rome or a world that was influenced by Rome, this is how the culture was and this is how everyone is living. Everyone is submitting to someone. There's always someone who's lording authority over the other. This is the way of Rome and this influenced a lot of surrounding cities, even if they weren't that close, uh, closely located to Rome. This culture ruled the day and this was how a lot of people lived. And so in ancient household codes, there was one person who was, or, or multiple people who were the subordinates, and there was always the one person who was the superior, okay? And so just a glimpse of that is kind of laid out in our passage today, but you need to keep this in mind that Paul is speaking to a time, to a culture that has this image in mind, that this is the order of authority. This is the hierarchy. This is how you are to live, right? The husband in ancient household codes, the husband is over the wife, right? The husband has the final say. He is the leader and the Lord of, of the household. The father and mother are over the children, but I only put father because really at the end of the day, the father has the final say since he's Lord of the household, right? And so Really, that should be parents, but it ultimately was father. And then you've got the master and slave dynamic, where the master, of course, lorded over uh, his or her slave. That, again, could be male or female, but the male leader had the ultimate say, right? And so this is an example of hierarchy, and this is an example of how things ought to operate in the ancient world, okay? Okay. You could even add on there, I didn't add this, uh, but you could even add on there a little bonus one that in church culture, if the church wasn't uh, living faithfully to what Paul had been teaching, for instance, or what Jesus had said, then you could even say that there was probably a little hierarchy when it came to Jews and Gentiles, where Jews would lord some authority over Gentiles. And so you just saw this everywhere. And here's what I, I need you to keep that in mind because it's going to really inform the rest of, of the sermon. But here's something else that's equally important. I need you to hold these two things together. 
closely, that this way of living, this structure, this order is not ordained by Paul, right? And nowhere does Paul fully support what you saw on the screen. It was not ordained by the church. The church would easily follow this way of living because it was the way of culture. It was the Roman way. It was the way to make things work effectively is what they were taught. But this wasn't ordained by Paul. This wasn't ordained by the church. But most importantly, this was not ordained by God. It wasn't. And you want to know why I can say that so confidently? Again, there's so many reasons. But I know for a fact because right out of the gate, when you look at that list of, of people that are included, there are all kinds of people and, and representation that's left out of that list, right? Where do the widows and the widowers fit in to that category, to those categories? Where do orphans or the, the displaced fit into those categories? There are so many people that aren't mentioned, and, and, and where does Paul fit into that category? That's another thing that I re- thought a lot this week, is that Paul is not married, nor is he a father. And, and we don't know every detail of Paul's life, but where does he, he doesn't even clearly fit into one of these categories. Other than that, he's a male. He's a male Jew who would have had some privilege and authority, but even he doesn't really fit neatly into those categories. And that's, that's a red flag for me because those such as orphans and widows and widowers, those were highly regarded by God. Those were the least of these who Jesus had great concern and care for. So it's a red flag for me when the ancient codes and the ancient structure of the day doesn't even include those who Jesus was the most concerned about. That's a problem. This was not ordained by God. All right? I need you to know that this was not ordained by God. And so this was this, this ancient household code. This was um, the influence of ancient philosophers. So think of Plato and Aristotle, right? They had a lot of influence over the way that the household structures operated. So Plato, what I learned is that he has in mind that the stronger rules over the weaker, Okay? The stronger, it's just the laws of nature. It's just how things are created, right? In Plato's mind, this is just how things are are meant to be, that the stronger would rule over the weaker. It's just how things are. And Aristotle took his cues from Plato, modified them just a bit, but even in his mind, the husband ruled the wife in a Republican manner. It was not a a democracy or an equal partnership. It was just whatever he said goes. He's always the ruler, the last word. And the wife, I loved this, that in Aristotle's mind, the wife shows the female version of courage by submitting to her husband in all things. That was courageous of her. So I, I like how he's you know, good wifey, you just support and, and submit to your husband and, and you're his subordinate and that's your courage. You're so brave, right? It's just really like, okay, cool. And in, in Aristotle's mind, the father always rules over as a monarch over his children and, and then the master or the owners rule over their slaves as tyrants. Like there was a clear and distinct order in Aristotle's mind. And what I love about Paul, this is a feisty passage, even if it's not in the language, it's implied because Paul, in his wording, you probably caught on to it several times, he talks about Christ, 
the head of the church, the Lord of the church. There's a lot of language between the body and Christ. And so Paul is recognizing in his language. Paul was very diplomatic and gracious in his language, and I love it. But you can see that, that he is clearly saying here that there is one ruler and one ruler only. That there is one authority and one authority only, and that is Christ. Right? Christ has the only authority, and we are all submitting equally and mutually to that authority. And so Paul is, is already kind of pushing back against what everyone else would have understood as the proper structure and ways of doing things. And, and today, what I recognize a lot as a pastor and even as a reader of Scripture, we see a lot of, of, of what Paul says, and we view it through a critical lens because we get, we're rubbed the wrong way by how this doesn't fit with how we, we like to live and how we think it's healthy to live today with this equality and egalitarian mindset, right? And so a lot of times I feel like we're a little critical of Paul's words, but you need to understand that everything that Paul is saying here was so radical for his day that for us, it's like, wow, Paul, you could have said and, and had done a little bit more than you did, but we have to respect the fact that everything he did say was really radical. And people would have heard these, this imagination, this idea of a new way of living and serving, and they would have been really bothered by that. And so that's why it's important for us to look at this passage through that lens, the lens that of the, of the original audience, they would have heard this and been like, whoa, Paul, chill out. Like, is this even, is this even, like, is this heresy? What is this? Right? It, it would have been really striking. And so Paul is, again, giving this imagination. You can see as you compare the ancient household codes to all that Paul says in this passage, Paul is working here for a sense of equality and mutuality and partnership. Right? That's what, what Paul is working at towards here. We call this uh, in, in, the, in the church, in the, in the world of clergy, you, can, you sometimes see this word egalitarian. We as a Nazarene denomination are egalitarians, and that means we view men and women as equals. We don't view them as one lords over the other. We view them as equal parts, both uh, equally important and both equally called to serve each other. And, and I think as we go through these, you'll see that Paul is, is strongly advocating for that as well. So let's break this down. Let's go through these, starting with, Paul starts with wives and husbands. Also, I want you to notice here, maybe this is totally insignificant, I don't know, but I want you to notice how each time Paul is addressing a new category, a new relationship dynamic, he's addressing the subordinate first, right? And so he says, wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. And maybe that's insignificant, but I kind of look at that as maybe a little nod because the order of writing things down was really important. That would have been noticed. And, and so I love the fact that Paul kind of flips it on its head, even in writing, because that's just to me like a little wink to we're completely subverting the narrative here. And right, he starts with wives and husbands. And even that is significant because wives typically weren't addressed at all, right? It was like that just wasn't important. That was not something that normally happened. And so the fact that he even addresses wives at all, let alone first, is really significant. And so we see in this passage, and oh, has this caused so much uh, turmoil and, and issues over time, but we see this word that Paul uses 
when he's speaking to wives and he's telling them to submit to their husbands. What he's not saying is obey, right? He's not telling wives to obey their husbands. He's calling wives to submit to their husbands. And, and we can acknowledge that, that certainly that has alone been used um, as a way of harm in some marriages. Like, I know that it's the case that this idea that a wife ought to submit to her husband, that itself has been abused at times, right? We've seen harm come from that because we are misunderstanding what Paul is saying in that passage. And just to give you, like, I'm going to show you some proof here of what I'm saying, not just pulling this out of nowhere, I want you to notice how the passage reads in the original Greek. Obviously, this is English, so I, I changed the Greek words for English words, but this is the order of the flow of thought for verses 21 and 22. This was one single thought. Paul was not separating two thoughts out here. You can see there, it says, being submissive to one another, he's speaking in the context of the entire church, right? To one another in the fear of Christ, the wives to their own husbands as to the Lord. So he's going through the list, addressing each person in each relationship, but this is one, one thought that is flowing from another. It's not two separate thoughts. I could go on and on about like, you know, the Greek way of writing things and some of the things Paul did and didn't do that wasn't normal for his writings. And so we know then, we can feel confident that this was not two separate thoughts. What this also isn't, I already said this a moment ago, this is not a command to obey. This is not Paul commanding wives to obey their husbands. Rather, what Paul is doing is he is inviting and imploring women to submit and to serve their husbands as they serve the Lord, right? As you carefully and faithfully serve the Lord, that should be seen in your relationship with your husband. You should serve and love your husband as you serve and love the Lord, not because he is your Lord, right? That's another thing that Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that the husband is the Lord of the household or the Lord of the wife. It's a metaphor. As you serve the Lord with the rest of the body of Christ, so women serve and love your husbands in this way. And we know that because Paul, in, a, in the same breath, tells husbands to submit to their wives in his own way. Right? And so we know that this is not to, to submit or a command to obey your husband because he is your Lord, but it's because that's what you do for the Lord. You serve and love, and that should be seen in your marriage. I love how one scholar says that this is an expression, not a concession. This is an expression of a wife's submission to the Lord. Because the wife submits to the Lord, to Christ, then she is going to demonstrate that in her relationship with her husband. Now, I want you to understand, I'm going to quote from Dr. Lane Kohick. She's the one who I've quoted a lot throughout this whole series. I want you to understand that I don't have many commentaries that are written by, by women, mostly because there's not that many. <laughs> it's kind of a newer thing. Um, and I want you to understand that even though I'm quoting a woman, and even though I am a woman, um, I, I need you to know that male scholars are in agreement with this. There are male scholars who support what I'm sharing with you. I probably read through six commentaries, or read from six commentaries this week, all male except for the one. 
And they all are supportive of this. That's not to say that there's not male scholars who see this in a different light, in a different way. That's fine. But all of the ones that I read that are egalitarian, because that's the, that's the backdrop that I'm in, right? They all support this. So I need you to understand, this is not like a feminist issue. This is ancient, okay? But I love how Lynn Kohick says this. She says, when it comes to, if you're still having trouble with like women uh, serving their husbands as to the Lord, or if you're still feeling like, it sounds like Paul is saying that the, the husband is head or Lord over his, his wife. And this is what she says about that. She says, remember earlier in Ephesians, Paul described Christ as the head of the body, which he sustains and causes to grow. We read this, remember? And so she says, of course, husbands are also brides in this passage. Husbands are a part of the church. They are members of the church. And so they too call Christ their savior. And so even as the husband submits as part of the bride of Christ, part of the church, so too he receives his wife's submission as she models for him the submission of all believers that they offer to each other in reverence or fear of Christ. So do you see how this is not so black and white, what Paul is saying, that it's not so one way or the other? All right, there was a black screen there. I'm just going to leave that. And so I, I want you to imagine, so Paul has just kind of gone over like, wives, here's what I want you to consider when it comes to your relationships with your husbands. And I think that the husbands or the men would have been like, yeah, yeah, right? Yes, thank you. Amen, brother. And then he gets to the, to the husbands. And, and, and lots of commentaries say something to the effect that at this point, jaws would have dropped. That as soon as Paul starts to talk to the husbands and then tells them like how they are to reciprocate in this submission, in this serving, in this loving, they would have been floored, like absolutely floored. They would not have been able to believe what they were hearing. Because you see, husbands in the ancient world, they weren't taught how to love. They weren't taught what it looks like to love their wife. They were taught what it looks like to lord over and have authority over their wife. They were the dominant. That's what they were taught. That's what was reinforced. And so for Paul to say that in this case, a husband shows his love for his wife by his willingness to lay down his rights and his privilege and his authority to serve his wife in return, it was unheard of. This was brand new information for Paul's listeners. And I love how once again, we see Paul do this a lot. And I love how once again, we see that Paul breathes the truth and the life of the gospel into social convention, right? Paul looks at all of this through the lens of the freeing, redeeming gospel of Jesus that puts everyone on equal ground, and I don't know, uh, I, I tried to be really careful to not get like give too many personal like examples because everyone's in a different place and not everyone here is even married. And so I didn't want to drag this out too long. But for those who are married, I think that you could see how being loved and respected and served and seen as an equal to your spouse, like having that from your spouse can't you see how that makes you want to love and serve and respect your spouse so much more? Like, I think that there's probably not much of an issue with us seeing that here, but it's just a, a reminder, 
right? And, and even as a, as a person who lives this out in our marriage, like Bo has always considered me his equal and has never lorded anything over me. But even I can listen to these words and it reignites my passion and my desire to, to treat him as my equal, as someone who I want to say, let's do it your way this time. Like, I'm not going to demand my way in this thing. I want to do it your way. And, and I appreciate when he does that for me. And so it makes me want to do that for him. And, and Tara Beth says so much about this in her book, uh, Emboldened. And I just love the description of, of her talking about a husband and wife. You know, since, since sin and the fall, there's this pull for authority and power and control. It's like a me first, no me first. And Tara Beth uses what Paul says and, and flips that on its head. And, and it's, you first, no you first, you first, no you first, right? Because that's what Paul has in mind here is two parties that are equally serving and submitting to the other. And it just helps the relationship to thrive and to be healthy, perhaps certainly the way that Christ envisioned. Do you see where we're going? You see what Paul is saying? All right. Uh, Good news. That one was Probably like in terms of our experience, that one was probably the toughest and the the most to take in. And so we're going to move on. And these two, there's a lot, uh, it's a little less to to go into with these other two because they're pretty straightforward. But Paul goes on to talk about children and parents. And I think it's pretty well understood by us and by Paul's readers that children ought to obey and respect their parents, right? And certainly in light of what it looks like to follow Christ, Uh, children would have been faithfully taught that, yes, part of how you follow Jesus is by loving and respecting and obeying your parents. But what Paul is possibly doing here is at that same time, uh, Paul could be speaking to or addressing and and disapproving of what would have been understood as excessive or unnecessary discipline in Paul's day, Uh, which again, like it's countercultural from what others taught. But I read this week, it's really disturbing, and I won't go into it, but in some contexts, um, small children, like unbearably small children, would have been abandoned, uh, significantly abused, and sometimes even killed as a result of discipline. And I think Paul clearly is, is speaking to, like, don't exasperate. That doesn't just mean, I don't think, to frustrate your children, but but to not lord your authority in a way that's harmful for your children, right? And so that's kind of something that was happening during that time. And so that could be something that Paul has in mind. But I also think that there's this misconception when we read this passage uh, where Paul says that if children obey their parents, that things will go well for you. I think there's a misconception here because we don't really have much reason to believe that Paul would have believed that children won't suffer and that they'll live a long life if they obey their parents. Keep in mind, Paul's writing a lot of his letters from prison, right? And Paul was an upstanding, faithful, pious Jewish man who would have followed all the rules, would have checked all the boxes, and here he is in prison. What does that say about his own words, right? And so I think sometimes we misunderstand that, that Paul's not promising or guaranteeing a certain number of years or a certain quality of life for good behavior, But likely what Paul is saying here, and it's consistent with his teachings, that he's speaking about the quality of life. That when children obey and respect their parents as they are walking with Jesus alongside their parents, that 
that things will go well. It's, it's a blessed relationship that things operate a lot more smoothly and it makes this journey to be a blessing. And, and that goes for parents, but that goes for kids too, too. And I love that Paul includes kids as part of his promise. Uh, I read too that kids made up like 40% of the congregations. Like, whoo, and they're in homes. Can you imagine? Like our life group meets in our home and we only have like five kids uh, sometimes six, but it's pretty loud and pretty crazy, but that's definitely not, you know, I don't know, maybe that wasn't a good analogy because that's probably pretty equal. But in Paul's day, like he's talking to a large portion of the congregation would, would have been kids. And so he's speaking to kids as he's saying, this is a healthy way of, of walking and following Jesus with your parents. Um, and what I love here, speaking again as a parent, I pulled from this, this is kind of my own, just maybe spirit uh, inspired interpretation that I notice as a parent um, that things go a lot better when I'm not lording my authority over my kids just because I can, you know, like, and everyone's experience is different and every relationship with parents and kids are different. But when I the few times that I think to like humble myself and get on the same ground as my kids, oftentimes what I'm learning from them and, and they are demonstrating grace and love that I as a parent need. And so what I would take from this is to not always assume that I'm always right and that my way is always the best way because my kids have proven to me in respectful ways, of course, that sometimes I get it wrong and I need that because I know I get it wrong sometimes. And so I need to, to humble myself and put myself on their playing field, not saying that they get to rule everything and no discipline, but it's respecting them. Do you see what I'm saying? And I think that may be what Paul has in mind is that there is this mutual respect for each other, even though certainly parents are, are tasked with, with helping their children to grow up to be good and and. Christ-fearing children, right? Like there's dynamics there. But kind of what I took from this part is what if rather than lording our authority over our kids just because we can, what if we remained open to how God wants to teach us through them? And I think that's kind of what Paul has in mind here. All right, we're coming up to the, to the close. Paul saves uh, this one for, this is the third dynamic that he's addressing, slaves and masters, and this one is, is tough for a number of reasons, right? And, and right out of the gate, knowing that this was where I was going to have to go and, and you, you know, don't want to skip this part just because it's hard and there's so much that, that we, we see this through, again, a 21st century lens, uh, there are a few scholars that I trust, when it comes to gaining insight and perspective. Like I, I'm very careful with which scholars I lean on for this. And for me, this is just a me personal thing. It's crucial for me that scholars that I'm reading and learning from when it comes to, to slavery in the Bible, like I need to read from a scholar who respects that Paul would not have condoned the kind of slavery that we've seen in the U.S., the, the slavery that has stained America, right? Like I'm reading from scholars who I trust are not going to spin what we've seen in America in, in modern times and, and compare that to biblical, to ancient times. Like these are two different things, and I'm personally only going to read from scholars who respect that, okay? So that's just a me personal thing. 
And and I understand, I want to name too, that many readers of scripture are really frustrated. You just think they're frustrated with the wife-husband situation, but they become really frustrated that Paul does not come out and specifically uh, condemn slavery, right? Like a lot of us read this and we just are like, why can't Paul just say what needs to be said when it comes to slavery, even in ancient times? And I appreciate scholars who talk about these verses, who help us understand these verses in light of their original context and only in light of their original context. And when we do that, like N.T. Wright does, this is what we can just understand and, and what we're kind of invited to respect when it comes to what Paul says. And so again, leaned heavily on N.T. Wright here. And he just gives us kind of at least four, again, I had to condense ways of understanding this. That number one, slavery was an indestructible part of the social structure, welfare system, and economic activity of the ancient world, right? Like we have to approach these verses understanding that no one seems to have understood a society. No one had an imagination for a society operating without the institution of slavery. I, I, say that Paul kind of does have an imagination for that, but we understand like this is what Paul is up against, right? The moral treatment of slaves would have been something that was certainly a concern and would have been discussed kind of on a philosophical plane, but the fact of slavery being um, a way of life in this time, it wasn't really debated. It was, it's it's necessity, oh my goodness, Its necessity was simply assumed. A lot of S's. And so N.T. Wright goes on, and the second thing that we want to keep in mind is that the social and hierarchical makeup of society would have made it nearly impossible to lodge an effective and successful political revolution against slavery. Remember, everyone submits to someone. It's not a democracy, right? You just do what you're told and and you submit to the higher power, the higher authority. So there wasn't an imagination for like, let's have a say in this and let's all agree that this is not good and we're going to get rid of it. That was not a way of life. That wasn't an option. And so that's something else that we have to keep in mind. He goes on and, oh, so sorry. He goes on and says, huh, the most effective means of improving a slave situation And so knowing that this is the way it was, there wasn't much imagination to change it, that the most effective means of improving a slave situation was to treat them kindly, right? To work towards release at some point, that was the goal, especially in Paul's world, in in Paul's context, influence, remaining under the master's patronage as a freed man or a freed woman. So in other words, ideally what society did work towards was that a slave could eventually become a freed man or a freed woman. And then they would, in a lot of cases, rely upon the support of their master, right? And so, but, and so society kind of thought, what does this look like to have this work cohesively and well? And we know for sure that Paul was absolutely advocating for this. And I think it's helpful to understand that in other places and other letters, Paul urges slaves not to accept the status quo, but he he implores them in 1 Corinthians 7, for example, to seek their freedom if they can get it. So Paul wasn't saying like, well, this is just your reality, deal with it. It was, here's how to operate in this relationship, but if you can seek freedom, then you should. 
And we see in the epistle to Philemon, and T. Wright talks about this too. I'm having trouble here. I don't know if it's just me. All right, I'm going to let you guys drive it. Uh, in the epistle to Philemon, Paul urges Philemon to accept Onesimus in a way that was radical, that radically altered slave-master relationships and dynamics. And so, yes, we see in this passage, it's hard, and we have to take it so carefully. We receive it so carefully and responsibly. We understand, though, that given the societal context, yes, Paul urges slaves to submit and to be respectful and to, to, to do what their masters tell them to do. But we see this again, that there is this reciprocal call that masters are told to treat their slaves with respect and to serve them in return and to be good to them. And this again would have been somewhat rare in Paul's day. And I'll end with this when it comes to this conversation, this topic. Uh, very highly renowned scholar, F.F. Bruce. Okay, sorry, I tried to control it again. Uh, there you go, thank you. F.F. Bruce notes um, that in the epistle to Philemon, we are brought into an atmosphere in which the inst institution of slavery could only wilt and die. That, that once Paul speaks into this and kind of gives an imagination for another way, I love how F.F. F. Bruce puts that, that, that we are brought into this place where we can imagine a world which slavery can and will die. And I say to that, thanks be to God, Wish it would have happened a lot sooner, but uh, that's the imagination that we have here. And so it's important to note that with this really difficult and sometimes problematic passage, that it presents this vision of household relationships that are rooted in an ancient setting. And, and in a lot of ways, it's considered unjust today, and that certainly applies to the slave master component it's considered unjust and in the case of slavery, just completely immoral. And so there's no room to even say anything else about it, that this is the imagination that Paul has. And so with all of that, I know it was a lot today, um, but with all of that, Paul gives us three specific relatable ideas for his audience of, of what it looks like to subvert the social structure, right? What's normal. Paul is saying, this is what's normal. This is what's been acceptable to this point, but I'm gonna flip that and give you an imagination for something that is so much better, for something that, that helps everyone to see that they are of equal worth and they are due equal respect, right? And Paul, remember, in the grand scheme of Ephesians, Paul is working for all of us to seek and to grasp the redemptive work in Christ as we are all being unified, as he is pursuing unity in all things. That was Ephesians 1 verse 10. This is what it looks like to be unified in Christ in our households and in our closest, most intimate relationships. And Paul is pursuing this, this unity in Christ by eliminating this controlling power of a superior and he's elevating the importance and worth of a subordinate. And Paul is recognizing and in so little words is saying that patriarchy and slavery do not allow for this. And so he's giving a new imagination that this is what it looks like to come together and to equally and mutually serve, submit and respect each other. And so what we have here in this passage, in this passage 
passage is that it's not the order of creation that shapes Christian households, right? Paul is pushing up against that. It's not the weaker rules over the stronger. It's not the order of creation that shapes Christian households. It's not the curse that shapes Christian households, right? It's not that, oh, we just settle for this because this is what it looks like to live in light of the fall. But instead, Paul is saying, rather than the curse or culture, it is Christ and Christ alone who shapes households. That this is what it looks like to live and to love and to serve in the imagination of Christ. And it brings about freedom. It brings about an equaling, a leveling of the playing field that helps each person to see that they are worthy of respect and humanization and love in the eyes of their Savior who laid down his life for them. And so this is what it looks like to love and to serve one another as we serve and love our Lord. I'm going to invite the praise team to come. It's a lot to, to reflect on this morning. And, and where I find like the tension, because there's always that, is that we continue to fight the sinful temptations of, of pride and selfishness and we're fighting this urge, this hunger for having our own way, and we all really want some kind of power and authority in some way, like that is what we are kind of pushing up against. That's what's in us a lot of times is pride and selfishness. And so at our worst, this is what we long for. This is what we crave, my, my way right? My say, you answering to me and doing what I want to do. There is this, this pull for that. But Paul here gives all of us, he gave this to the Ephesians and he's giving this to all of us, a glimpse of what it looks like to use whatever power or privilege we have to serve each other. And so as we close this morning, I want you to consider uh, those with whom you live or those with whom you interact with on a regular basis. Because again, Paul's dealing with a society that didn't have a lot of imagination, I guess, for single people, for people who weren't married, who didn't have kids, for widows, widowers. And so if it's, whether it's those with whom you live or those that you interact with on a regular basis, the invitation is how can we love and serve them? What does it look like for us to lay down our pride and lay down having our way so that we can love and serve those who are in our circles and in our sphere of influence? And that is going to help all of us to be a healthier community, to reflect what Christ had in mind for us. And so God, we invite you now to once again, ignite our imaginations, help us to 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 see what this looks like in our own context, in our own relationships. God, we, we submit to you this morning and we look for your way, which is the way that helps us to thrive in our relationships and helps us to effectively and faithfully love and serve those who we do life with. And we rely on your strength for that. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I would invite you to take a posture of worship, whatever that looks like for you, for those who would like to stand. 
as always, we love and serve from a place of being well-loved and cared for. So our response today is just to meditate on how God has loved and served us, which enables us to do that. Amen. There's honey in the rock, there's water in the stone, manna on the ground, no matter where I go. I don't need to worry now that I know everything I need you've got. There's honey in the rock. Praying for a miracle, thirsty for the living well. Only you can satisfy. Who you are is here. 
sweet it is to trust in you, Jesus. Oh, how sweet, how sweet it is to trust in you, Jesus. Oh, how sweet, how sweet it is to trust in you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I always love how uh, Nikki reminds us intentionally and faithfully. It's so good because it's such a balance that we can only love and serve after being in a place of recognizing how loved we are and how Christ demonstrated his love for us by laying his life down. And so when we walk out of here knowing that we are walking in the freedom and in the love of Christ, we don't have to grasp for that anywhere else. We've already found that freedom in Christ. He informs who we are. He's informed our worth and what is true. And so then we can go out in our relationships and faithfully and freely give ourselves and lay ourselves down, knowing that it's Christ and Christ alone who fills us and who guides us. Amen? Amen. All right, that was a little weak, but I'll take it. Friends, thanks. Friends, I invite you now to go in the grace and peace of our Lord. Go in his guidance, and I I implore you, I encourage you to faithfully submit to one another, to look for ways that you can love and serve and lift up others, even starting today, and go knowing that Christ goes with you. You're dismissed.